0: The Geopolitics and Empire podcast is joined by Douglas Valentine, who is the author of groundbreaking books such as The Phoenix Program, America's Use of Terror in Vietnam, and more recently, The CIA as Organized Crime, How Illegal Operations Corrupt America and the World. We'll be discussing how... America's surveillance and police state was developed in a way uh, back in Vietnam and how deep events perhaps such as 9-11 and now COVID-19 are perhaps accelerating deployment uh, of these national uh, security state systems. Uh, Thanks for being with us, Mr. Valentine.
1: Thank you for having me on your show. I hope I can contribute something.
0: I, I think you definitely will. Uh, now, you've written some astounding books, such as The Phoenix Program. It, uh, it, it uncovers a shocking CIA rendition, assassination, extermination program of civilians developed and perfected in 1960s and 70s uh, in Vietnam. The development and deployment of these techniques and technologies have continued well beyond Vietnam, Onto war zones across the world and onto the streets of America itself. So perhaps to uh, give uh, our listeners a bit of a background, I don't think too many have uh, know about the Phoenix program. And so uh, when I used to teach at university, I would uh, mention it to my students. And so, can you give us a brief explanation of you know what was the Phoenix program before we look at how it's you know being applied today?
1: Okay, um, the Phoenix program uh, was created by the CIA in South Vietnam in 1967. And uh, at the time, American forces had been in the country for about two years. The American military, Americans had been fighting uh, mostly the North Vietnamese who were coming down from uh, along what was called the Ho Chi Minh Trail in Laos and Cambodia, and um, coming over the Central Highlands and coming into uh, South Vietnam to fight main force wars, battles, you know, tanks and machine guns and, and soldiers, like in, in um, Platoon, the Oliver Stone movie, you know, just combat combat. <clears throat> But at the same time, uh, the Americans could not win over the South Vietnamese population politically, and they were um, the South Vietnamese population was supporting Viet Cong guerrillas who did not who did not have much to do with the North Vietnamese Army. These were irregulars, people who had formed their own. Uh, uh, military units and were um raging guerrilla warfare against americans in south vietnam and, and of course um south vietnamese um politicians and and uh um uh, doing all sorts of things that guerrillas do and so they were supported the, the guerrillas were supported by what was a, um, by a political apparatus, which the United States referred to as the secret government. The United States was supporting the president of South Vietnam, a military general named Thieu. And at the same and and he had um, representatives spread throughout the country in the provinces. There were 44 provinces and they had a province leader in each province that reported back to president to you and affected um american policies in the, in the provinces well at the same time the secret government uh which supported the Viet Cong insurgency they also had leaders in every province and they had leaders political leaders in every district but these people were were operating undercover because it was you know they were secret agents and they had this clandestine secret apparatus set up throughout the country that was uh supporting the guerrillas and the CIA developed the Phoenix program in 1967 to destroy that secret government that secret apparatus of civ- basically civilians in political positions who were supporting the war effort in in South Vietnam and the, and the principal way There were a couple of principal ways of doing that. But the part that really becomes transferable to the United States is that the first thing they had to do was to identify the members of this secret organization. Who who are the members of this secret government? And they called them the Viet Cong infrastructure. And so the United States, through the Phoenix program, set up, a surveillance system over everything, over every facet of South Vietnamese life. It began with everybody in South Vietnam having to have like an identification card. Then on that identification card was every piece of conceivable information about you and your family. That way they could know if somebody had a reason to travel outside their district or outside their village or outside their province. And as soon as somebody started behaving in a way that you know suggested that they might be part of this secret government, then the, the the special branch of the South Vietnamese government, which was like our FBI, and worked, which had been created by the CIA, by the way, would start surveilling a person, and they would try and they would uh, you know secretly conduct operations against this person. They would follow them around, they would bug their home, things like that, and until they Thought that well maybe this is a guy in the in in that apparatus and then the first thing they try to do is recruit him, okay. Which you have to understand here in the United States when I start talking about um, Phoenix style operations here in the United States, the most important thing that the government wants to do once it identifies somebody as a dissident. Or somebody who's involved in Black Lives Matters, or even the Proud Boys, any kind of organization that it doesn't feel it has total control over. The first thing they want to do is recruit somebody in that organization. You know, they they don't want to disrupt the organization. They want to get somebody inside who can tell them what the plans and strategies of that organization are. Okay that was not particularly easy for the cia to do it was to actually get agents inside the secret government they were very rarely able to do that so by and large what they tried to do was kidnap these people and this is where you know the reputation for phoenix as a um, kidnapping and assassination program begins because they couldn't actually, you know, these were really uh, hardcore ideological people who were dedicated to fighting the Americans in South Vietnam. So it wasn't easy to turn them into double agents. And a few times that they did turn into double agents, they were generally triple agents <laughs> who were pretending, you know, so there was this whole espionage war going on. And most Americans didn't speak Vietnamese, so they couldn't tell. Whether somebody was you know, pulling the wool over their eyes or not, including their allies in the, in the South Vietnamese special police and stuff like that, okay? which is a problem they have around the world. But anyway, if they couldn't get somebody to turn or become an agent for them, then the next thing they would do is kidnap them. And they had special teams that were set up to do that. And they were called counter-terror teams. And they were mercenaries in the employ of the CIA, Um, and very often they would dress like Viet Cong guerrillas, and these were often uh, Viet Cong soldiers or North Vietnamese soldiers or criminals who had been let out of prison and went to work for the CIA, and these people had no connection, they were absolutely, you know, no connection at all to the insurgency. They were dead set against the insurgency, and by and large, they could be trusted. And these people would go out at night or, you know, um, uh, uh, arrange other ways to get a person alone when he wasn't, you know, expecting anything. They would kidnap him, and they would put him in an interrogation center. Now, starting in 1965, and this is another important thing to remember in terms of Phoenix, coming back to the United States. In 1965, in South Vietnam, before there was, two years before there was a Phoenix program, the CIA built what was called a province interrogation center in every province in South Vietnam, in all 44 provinces. And these interrogation centers were, again, manned by the special branch of the South Vietnamese police. This was the FBI that the CIA created in South Vietnam, specifically to go after insurgents and, and people who were, you know, um, uh, trying to overthrow the government. And they built an interrogation center in, in, in every province. And they once they kidnapped somebody, they would take them to the interrogation center. If people are interested, and I know you just read the book, I actually intergo- inter- interviewed the guy, John Muldoon, who built the book. You know, he was a CIA. He, he was a CIA officer who told me how he went about doing this and why they did it and how these interrogation centers worked. and And, and the CIA staffed them with professional interrogators, and and um, these places became known as, you know, torture centers, where people were just worked over and worked over and worked over. and, and uh, It's. I think my book is the only book. That's been written about the Vietnam War that goes into the interrogation centers in any in any depth, simply because I had the CIA officer, John Muldoon, who I interviewed, tell me all about it. But otherwise, it's one of the CIA's most closely held secrets. Well, these interrogation centers are like laboratories to learn how to interrogate people. Also, the CIA doesn't just interrogate people. It keeps records on how you do it and, and what methods work best. And these are all like little laboratories where the CIA is always studying and videotaping and sending reports back to headquarters where, you know, experts work it over, look, you know, look it over and review it. And so the CIA really, re- in South Vietnam, perfects its interrogation techniques. It, it perfects. Building interrogation centers, and these become the model for all the black centers, black sites that the CIA starts building after 9 11 around the world. They're modeled exactly on this, they're, they're built the same way, probably by the same companies, you know, with the, the design the same way. And the interrogators will know based on what happened in South Vietnam, the best ways of interrogating people and one of the one of the you know uh, most uh, favored means of interrogating people was the uh, waterboarding i mean well it happened everywhere all the time and people learned that this was there in south vietnam that this was a really effective way of doing so then once they had washed a person out in the interrogation centers they would hand them over to the military or they would send them to prison or they just execute them, summarily kill them. And by, the, by 1969, the CIA had also helped build an interrogation center in every district in South Vietnam. That's 244 districts. So they had an interrogation center. That's like down to the in, in every county in the United States. Every state would have an interrogation center in every county where they could send dissidents to be worked over. If they couldn't capture a person, then this is when they would assassinate them. And the same teams that did the kidnapping would do the assassinating. And lots of the assassination occurred um, during ambushes, waiting along, you know, knowing where somebody was going to be at a particular time. And just waiting for him, and then killing him and everybody who was with him, so that you know, literally, they never rarely caught somebody alone, you know. And, and when they would assassinate somebody, they ended up assassinating everybody around them. So at the end of, the, by the end of the war, the CIA said it had uh, assassinated or killed twenty five thousand people. The South Vietnamese said they had killed around 40,000 people, okay, according to their records. But nobody was counting all the extra people. They were only counting the people that they targeted. And so the number, given the fact that dozens, in in almost every instance, you know, five or six or seven or eight or ten other people got killed, sometimes they would drop a bomb on a village hoping to, to, you know, get one of these people. So uh, these assassination and kidnapping teams, which were considered, the, the, the military didn't want anything to do with them in, in Vietnam, all right, because they, they were going after civilians. They compared it to the SS, the German SS. You know, this is what the German SS was doing in World War II. They were going after partisans. They were going after the the underground in France, in Greece, you know, in in any occupied country. This is what the SS was doing. They were going after the resistance, largely um, civilians. You know, and this is what the Gestapo was doing. The Gestapo was going after civilian members of the of the uh, resistance well this is exactly what the phoenix program was doing in south vietnam and the military because it resembled the gestapo and the ss didn't want anything to do with it at first okay they thought it, it violated the laws of warfare and it did and later on phoenix was um, accused of violating the geneva conventions which guarantees protection to civilians during a time of war. But so because it was directed at civilians, it was the CIA's job. And so uh, it took two years before the the military started um, really assisting the CIA in this program. The military ostensibly took over in 1969. And by that point, military officers were starting to accept that this was the way This was the role that the military was going to have to play in counterinsurgencies. And nowadays, these kidnapping and assassination teams are basically all that the military does anywhere around the world anymore. They don't have main force battles where they, you know, fight. uh, It's not like the... The, the Taliban are coming in from Pakistan in, in regiments and divisions with with tanks like the North Vietnamese did. You know, it's all guerrilla warfare now because nobody can fight the United States militarily, and you know, in face to face. So that whole part of the, the military and, it, and its bag of tricks has become obsolete. And it took about 40 years for the military to... 30 years for the military to, to realize this. They realized that in particular by the time the war in, right after 9-11 when, when the, the, the you know, the army invaded Iraq and the army um, military invaded Afghanistan. Those were basically guerrilla wars. Also, you know, in, in Iraq it was largely an urban guerrilla warfare. But it was really it was based exactly on what the Phoenix program was doing in South Vietnam, and and people in you know 2002 2003 started writing about it. People like Seymour Hersh saying this is this is the Phoenix program. You know I was writing about it before it happened, saying this is what's gonna happen. You know, but I'm not in the mainstream. And it wasn't until people. Seymour Hirsch started saying, well, this is the Phoenix program, but this is what happened and the CIA and the military set up interrogation centers just like these they did in South Vietnam, throughout Iraq and throughout Afghanistan. Same thing. okay And they, they had these kidnapping and assassination teams that, that worked all through Afghanistan still still are in Afghanistan still in in Iraq and that whole region, Syria, all through that region. This is the way wars are conducted. It's the way wars are conducted in Africa. It's the way wars have been conducted in in, um, uh, South and Central America since the 1970s. The first place that Phoenix was exported to from South Vietnam was El Salvador in 1974, 1975. So that by the time the Iran-Contra the, the contra War starts, it's all, it's all Phoenix-style operations in El Salvador and Nicaragua. This is, a, this is the way the military fights. It advises uh, its allies, their paramilitary teams, to go out and get whoever is the leaders of the opposition in that country. And they attack the civilians. In in Iraq, you know they had playing cards with the names and and ranks of everybody in the Baath Party, which they handed out, and they was rewards for all these people. They called it their high value rewards program to get people to inform. Well, this that started in South Vietnam. With the Phoenix program, the Phoenix program began a high value rewards program in 1969 because the best way to find out who the members were of this secret government was to put a bounty on their head. So so they found, you know, they get informants to you know, offer people to to rat out their neighbors. And again, this is very important to know. Because ever since the Department of Homeland Security was created here in the United States, you know, first as the Office of Homeland Security in 2001, and then later it became, a you know, a department. It went from an office in the White House, and then legislation was passed, and the Department of Homeland Security was created and spread throughout the United States. The main thing that the Department of Homeland Security does Is it recruits informants all throughout the United States, and it does this in many, 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 many ways. It it does through business, the businesses, what's called the critical infrastructure here in the United States. Critical infrastructure, the internet companies, uh, you know, the medical profession, um, oil companies transportation companies, communication companies, they all work with the Department of Homeland Security. They all have outreach through, you know, the the Department of Homeland Security reaches out to every civil, civic organization in the United States and gives them training in emergency preparedness. And what to do in case there's, you know, a problem here or a problem there. And they form relationships with all these business people. Business people who are worried that rioters will break their glass, their windows, things like that. You know, it starts down at the very grassroots level. And all those people willingly work. And, you know, property owners, businesses with big property, a lot of property, uh, major corporations. They're the integral part of the Department of Homeland Security. And the first thing they do is they look out within their own business. They spy on people within their own companies to make sure that they, they look at their um, memorandum between each other in a hospital or at GE or for you know a paint company corporation in Pittsburgh. And if they see any anything in they, by surveilling the internal communications of people in all these country, companies that see anything that, that sets off a red flag, they tell the Department of Homeland Security. You know, so that's how this sort of phoenix blanket surveillance starts taking hold in the United States by the formation of the Department of Homeland Security, which in order to assure security in the homeland, works with the people who have a stake in security. And those are largely business owners. And that's how it works at the very basic level where those people are looking within their own organization for anybody who might be stepping out of line. And and so so there's many different ways that Phoenix comes back to roost in the United States. Um, But largely, and most importantly, it's through the psychological warfare aspect, the, the way of, of trying to win people over to a cause through propaganda. And this was one of the main features of the Phoenix program in trying to get people to become informants in South Vietnam against the, the secret government. There, there, it was a very difficult thing to do, because these were very committed people. It's not so much like here in the United States, where there is no cohesive, unified, national resistance that works underground and is trying to overthrow the government. We don't have that. But they had that in South Vietnam. So they were trying to, again, just like they learned interrogation techniques in these um, interrogation centers, they also learned how to convince people to change sides. They learned to convince people how to defect, how um, uh, uh, how to work on them psychologically to wear them down so they would not want to continue fighting. All these sorts of psychological warfare um, uh, techniques were also developed in South Vietnam through the Phoenix program, which by 1970, and I have the the documents that put them up, the Phoenix program was the number one psychological warfare operation in South Vietnam, simply because it knew who everybody was. had documentation on what their beliefs were just like through the internet companies anybody who's on google they know every damn thing about you you know i mean if you if you like nike sneakers nike advertisements show up on your iphone 14 times a day just like they knew everything you know on a very primitive level in south vietnam about people and they were using that information to try to get them to turn against the insurrection. Here in the United States, nowadays they know everything about who you are. They're mostly getting you trying to get you to buy consumer products. They know what your demographic is, and, you know, and the and the companies that that sell you things know how, which buttons to push in order, you know, oh. There's a new line of, of, of hiking gear out, you know, and if you like L.L. Bean and you and like healthy, you know, walking in the woods, you know, then boom, you know, this tells you to buy your new raincoat. Well, at the same time, at a more subtle psychological warfare level, messages are being communicated to everybody in the United States by the various political parties. To again, depending on your demographics, to get you to support the Democrats or the Republicans or Biden or Trump, and again, all this is very well coordinated. It's very sophisticated, and it's designed to assure that nobody tries to overthrow the government of the United States. And that that's that's what Homeland Security is: is maintaining a very careful balance. Uh, Of people on the left, on the right, the Proud Boys, uh, Antifa, uh, all the different groups, monitoring them and their members and um, uh, following them and where they go, knowing who they talk to, trying to get the people that they talk to, to influence them to go in particular directions, trying to recruit these people over to the government even if they don't know that they're being recruited, by setting up, um, you know, through the Department of Homeland Security, groups that appear to be uh, right-wing militias, groups that appear to be uh, affiliated with Black Lives Matter, doing all these sorts of of very tricky, subtle, suggestive kinds of things to try and move people so that they can move, they can get absolutely control politi- all the political, social, political and social movements here in the United States, which they virtually do. And 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 what you have is is the Democratic Party brand of American fascism fighting the Republican brand of American fascism, and 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 both using whatever kind of uh, of of uh, uh, psychological warfare they can, direct it against their own demographic to keep them in line. And nobody ever, like I was saying to you, ever sees on their major media is never exposed to any kind of Marxist, Leninist <laughs> analysis of what is going on. Bernie Sanders, you know, makes a little effort at that uh health care for everybody you know but you know according to the united states government that's insurrection <laughs> that's, that's revolution you know i mean doing away with insurance companies you know i mean that's a multi billion dollar uh, you know enterprise so you can't do away with like that so people can't have health care and thus you have a crisis like covid where other countries have not had a covid crisis because they have health care for everybody. You you don't have to worry about it. You know, certainly they have health, the only people who get health care here in the United States, basically, are Donald Trump and senators and congressmen. You know, everybody else, unless you're a millionaire, has to wonder, where am I going to get my health care? And so uh, a a, um, uh, pandemic, a crisis like COVID, Becomes a tool of psychological warfare in the United States, because people are off balance, and it seems like the government is actually using this virus as a weapon against the people. And they are. because nowhere is it nowhere is the solution to this problem, which is national health care good care for everybody, a smaller defense budget, taking money from, from the American empire, the military aspect of the American empire, bases, 800 bases around the world, taking money away from that and giving it to healthcare, nowhere is that ever presented as a solution. The, the, the dialogue is so limited here in the United States that solutions are impossible. And so it's very easy for the government Doesn't even have to create a crisis from COVID, like COVID. All it has to do is keep everybody off balance through the crisis. And it just maintains the stasis between Democrat and Republican. You know, I mean, if you, I know I've been talking at length, but if you watched the Pence Harris debate, they're both for fracking, they're both for, Uh, more funding for police and prisons, you know, they're both for maintaining or increasing the military budget. Uh, There is no, nobody is offering any relief for the American people. And at the same time, this Phoenix program, which has been brought back to the United States, which is this, it's why the Phoenix program was called the Phoenix program. Phoenix is a mythological bird that sees everything. It's, a, it's, it, it's omnipotent, like God, the Phoenix. It, it sees everybody and everything. And it was, it was used as a symbol in South Vietnam to try and scare the insurgents, to try to make them give up the insurgency. You know, oh, the Phoenix is watching us. You know, it knows what we're going to do. We're ineffectual. Well, that's what's happened here. Everybody knows there's round-the-clock surveillance. And everybody feels, and this is, the, this is the main purpose of the psychological warfare, is to suppress everybody spiritually. If you know that there's blanket surveillance, if you know that every, you know, every time you turn on your iPhone, your favorite product line is going to show up, you think to yourself, well, what can I do in the face of this kind of, you know, omnipotence of the government? And that is what we're facing, a spiritual battle where the United States government treats its own people as if they were um, occupying a foreign country. And this is, this is the analysis that analysis of any Marxist-Leninist would tell you is what's happening. That the United States, United States treats is an empire, and it treats labor overseas the same way it treats labor here. It doesn't. It doesn't. Uh, you know. I mean, it rings more out of labor overseas. It, it, you know, um, through agreements with China or or um, so any other country where it has trade agreements and. Um, and cheap labor is available for american corporations which have have expanded overseas but at the same time the attitude towards american workers is no different keep keep you know keep them struggling make them make make sure that rent is more than you can afford so that so that poor people are competing with each other for jobs and for housing whereas if you had a marxist leninist government this is the first you know like in cuba you know despite all the um uh, sanctions on cuba or you know uh, venezuela where where um they're also trying to work for um the average person the first thing you get are medical rights you get access to health care as you do in scandinavian countries as you do it, you know, uh, you get made. housing is considered a human right. You, you know, the government makes sure that you have affordable housing. These things are considered obligations of the government. Not so here. And that's because of the effectiveness of the propaganda of the psychological warfare operation that's being waged against America. You know, they're told that they're, you have that sign behind you. Liberty begins with you, and they're telling you that you're, if, 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 you, if the government provides you with a guaranteed housing and with guaranteed health care, you're not free. You're not an American. You're not a real American. You're only a real American unless you're willing to risk your own health and your family's safety and security for a dream of, of make, becoming a billionaire. So anyway, understanding Phoenix and how it comes home involves all these various aspects. It's it's the model for the fusion centers, the Phoenix program here in the United States. Phoenix was set up on, based on um, what were called Intelligence Operations Coordinating Centers, IOCs, I-O-C-C. And there was a Phoenix IOC. In every district, that's 244 districts in South Vietnam. That's 244 diocs, and there was a there was an ioc, a Phoenix Intelligence uh, Coordination Operations Center in, in every province, a pioc. Well, those become the Department of Homeland Security fusion centers, which do the same thing. The these intelligence operations coordinating centers in South Vietnam brought together every military, civilian, and uh, uh, police organization in South Vietnam, and coordinated and computer-prized all their operations in search for this secret government and individuals involved in this secret government. Coordinated all the intelligence and all the operations. And when, after 9-11, it was thought that the Muslims were going to invade America. <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, the Department of Homeland Security set up a, what was called a fusion center. They didn't call them a box, but it's the same thing. A fusion center in every state to coordinate every military, police, and civilian um, uh, organization that in, in any way had anything to do with detecting amongst the civilian population anybody who might be a threat in any conceivable way, you know. uh, And and, and so that's how the whole blanket surveillance works, and that's how the Department of Homeland Security in every state access the coordinating center for all that intelligence and also uh, all the informants. It coordinates all the informant information so that it can share it with the FBI so that it can share it with the CIA, so that it can share it with uh, the Portland Police Department in in Oregon. You know, it just has every piece of information about everybody. And it uh, 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 works primarily to conduct this kind of psychological warfare against the American people to keep them down and keep them from organizing and keeping them from understanding in any way, shape or uh, um, form what their own self interests could possibly be if they were if the government was ever ever able to if they were ever able to get this police state off their backs and this military empire off their backs, what the what the American people might do. But as it stands right now, they're just so weighted down by military propaganda, by by police and surveillance and, and even the surveillances of, of every camera of, of a business camera on every corner. Every time you walk into a store, somebody's you know photographing you. You can't go to a demonstration while 40 people with iPhones taking pictures of you. You know, people think, well, oh this is great because it can show police brutality. Well at the same time. They're identifying every protester, (laughs) you know, and and then once they know who your name is, they know who all your friends are too, and and they can squeeze you in a in a million ways, and 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 this threat just looms over American society. It's just this massive weight pushing it down. I don't know how else to explain it, but. That's the 45-minute lecture.
0: Yeah, I mean, you. a lot of the questions I gave uh, before we started the interview, you, you pretty much uh, answered. And um, let me see. One of the scary parts of the uh, coming home to roost was discovering it was reported some years ago of black sites in Chicago. So, you know, this is not happening in Iraq or, or Afghanistan or Vietnam, where in Chicago they have black sites where people, Americans, were renditioned illegally, not rest, arrested, tortured, and even killed. And I'm from Chicago. So this black site was not far from, uh, you know, where I where I grew up. So these, these types of things are shocking. And, you know, as you kind of gave us this big overview, I guess one of my final questions would be, do you feel that, as you said, they've weaponized COVID, um, and now they're talking about uh, bringing in all of these, like additional surveillance, biosecurity apparatuses. Do you see that the whole pandemic situation like 9-11 in some ways may advance further this surveillance, um, you know, home homeland security apparatus? And then, you know, what, what, do, what do you see for the future? Are we going to be living in some brave new world Orwellian totalitarian police state? Like, is it already here? How bad can that get?
1: Well, for me the way I understand it and the way I see it you know having been steeped in all this for 35 years is not like the way people see it you know I mean they, you know it's um, um epistem- epistemology you know that I have an environment a mental environment that that because of being steeped in the CIA and the DEA and police and psychological warfare i don't see how it can get any worse you know uh, to me it's everything is already in place so that when something like this happens with covid it's simply managing it okay well how you know what difference would it make now if everybody had a chip in their head i mean they already have a metaphorical Chip in their head from being propagandized. You don't actually need a figurative. You know, I mean, a, a material chip in your head. If you want to get rid of the chip in your head, you got to get out of the propaganda, you know, and shed that and start finding out factual ways to view the situation. You know, and and a good step is to get off the internet. You know, and start reading books and organizing with with people face to face. And I think that if COVID is doing anything that benefits the powers that be, the powers that control us, it's by teaching us but by separating us from each other more and more. It's this psychological distancing that, that's stressing us all out. I mean, it really stress. I feel the stress, um, you know, of of the lack of human contact, and and uh, at the same time, China has no more COVID cases. (laughs) How can other countries have wiped it out, and the United States not? You know, so it suggests to me that. And and I particularly fought, blame this on Trump and the Republican current, you know, Republican administration, is that they're keeping the COVID pandemic going as a way of further alienating people from one another. It's you know going back to Guy Debord and the society of the spectacle and making people reify themselves in in consumer goods, you know, being more dependent on Amazon. You know what do i what can I get to make my life worthwhile when I can't be with other people? well, I gotta go to amazon you know or I gotta look on the on the internet where I don't know if anybody's telling me the truth or lying to me you know so it just creates a more malleable subservient population, and I don't think that. The government created COVID. I you know, I mean, these things happen. But they certainly have managed it to further fragment and fracture American society. And that makes it more manageable. Oh, I don't, don't know what's going to happen after the election, but the future does not vote well in either case. The only thing that would help at this point in time, and I'm not suggesting, you know, I happen to believe that people should be, to take precautions during this uh, pandemic in the United States, wear a mask, social distance. But in in the meantime, make plans with people so that in the future, we can be like the Viet Cong. We can create an infrastructure that works mouth to mouth, mouth to ear, without being part of the, you know, that somehow can be outside the surveillance state. And so that people can, can um, uh, learn to love one another and, and, and seek other people out, people who might have different views. And so that everybody from every you know everybody who's not a billionaire or part of the political class or in a um, you know the upper one percent where life is going to be good no matter what happens, you know everybody else would just try to get together on a very personal level apart from apart from the internet, apart from. Stupid disagreements. The kind of disagreements that you see flaring up on Reddit or or Facebook, where people just battle each other for no reason. You know, they're just being trained on, on social media to fight each other and, and to stand up for stupid reasons, for, to back stupid causes, and for people to start really trying to break free of that to get out of this this you know burdensome psychological warfare and to start using these this pandemic to see that the way out when the virus is behind us and it's safe to to work together to just try to connect with each other on a very human basis. And that's the only the only means of redemption for America now. For the only salvation is to get down to this sort of one-to-one, in-person communication level of, of, of really just trying to understand each other and love each other and help each other out in a very organic, earthly way. And and uh, uh, you know, how the hell does anybody do that? I don't know. You know, I mean, it's everybody's got to want to do it and maybe the pandemic will, you know, not will have a, you know, sort of a counterintuitive effect in the long run that that we really do need each other and we need each other's emotional support. And that rather than fighting each other and arming ourselves, <laughs> you know, and, and throwing Molotov cocktails at each other, and, and either metaphorically on the Internet or, you know, in, in real life in demonstrations, to, to follow like the, uh, uh, to me, the example of really the Black Lives Matter people who stress nonviolence, uh, who stress uh raising your consciousness understanding yourself and other people better and more intimately you know to follow that path and to see if that can lead us somewhere because god knows the path of consumer society and endless growth you know is just leading to to, uh, to the destruction of our own climate and environment
0: Uh, um, As you mentioned about uh, people going to Amazon, you know, for for me, instead of purchasing something on Amazon, I'd rather, you know, spend my time talking to someone like uh, Doug Valentine. uh, And I think that that that's a much more useful uh, way of spending our time and for other people to listen to this. And as well as you mentioned, wear our masks. I like the mask uh, V for Vendetta you have behind you. I have one, too. So I I, I wear that mask. (laughs)
1: Yeah, I have my mask, there. Yeah. (laughs) I, I might, if if they let the kids out on Halloween I might greet them at the door with my vendetta <laughs> hand, out, hand out revolutionary literature to the little kids instead of um hershey bars
0: and and your solution as well uh it's overlapped with uh, many of the previous guests that I've had, and a lot of them are saying uh the same thing you know talking to people talking to your neighbors and forming you know groups that we don't have to always be connected with our whatsapp and 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 facebook and i kind of don't like you know i use it because of the podcast but otherwise i like to live in the in the real world and um is there if you have any other final thought uh for us and as well i think your main website is douglas valentine and you're on Twitter, so people should should bookmark that site, should go out and get your books. So if you have any final thought for us or, or any other website or project uh, you want us to know about?
1: No, just DouglasValentine.com. You know, and people can follow me on, on Facebook or Twitter. Um, you know, I use Facebook to try to sell books. I use Twitter <laughs> to try to sell books. I'm a writer. <laughs> you know, I mean, I, it's what I do. I, so, you know, I want to sell my books. So, like you say, um, they can be helpful if, if you're self-employed and you have a business, you know. But uh, like anything, you have to be clear-eyed about it. And you have to be rational about it. And you can't lose yourself into Facebook or you can't lose yourself to Twitter, to the exclusion you know, of like going to the library and, and reading books and trying to educate yourself on on, on, um, on matters, like you say, the real world, you know. So so maybe maybe the, the country is reaching a tipping point and maybe the COVID will, if there's anything good that can come up out of it, just raise awareness amongst people about how much we really do need each other in a personal, intimate way. And and, uh, to try to put value on that, more and a greater value on that, contributing to each other's well-being than all the other things that are going on.
0: All right. Uh, I I know I usually recommend my guests' books, but you know I I did just purchase uh, the Phoenix Program book and your newer newer book on the CIA as organized crime, which I haven't read yet, but I'm gonna start reading. Uh, but I do really recommend Doug Valentine's books because I don't think there's almost no one talking about that that's really dug deep uh, on the Phoenix Program. And as you explained to us in this interview, it has a lot of impact. Uh, it impacts all of our lives like like i mentioned i'm from chicago they they have the the black black site there near to my home which as you explained has its history back in the phoenix program um, uh, in vietnam and so uh thank you again for being with us mr valentine
1: uh it was my pleasure thank you for letting me ramble for 45 minutes straight <laughs>
0: You can help the Geopolitics and Empire podcast by subscribing to and interacting with all of our channels such as YouTube, Twitter, Facebook, Gab, Minds, and Steemit. You can also help us by leaving a rating and review on your favorite podcast platform such as iTunes, CastBox, Stitcher, Spreaker, and so on. Finally, if you value our work and our mission, and would like to see us continue interviewing experts from across the political spectrum, please consider leaving a one-time donation via PayPal or Bitcoin, or becoming a regular monthly supporter on our Patreon. All the links can be found on geopoliticsandempire.com. Thanks for listening.